WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts! <laughs> From WNYC. See? And NPR. Three, two, one. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Quilwich. This is Radio Lab, the podcast. And lately, we at Radio Lab have become a bit robot obsessed. Yeah. And uh, we met a guy. All right. My name is Latif Nasser. He's a grad student in the History of Science Department at Harvard. And he got us thinking about really old robots, like hundreds of years old. Like, for example, I've heard rumors mm-hmm. whispered by Soren mostly mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, about a pooping duck. A poop. Oh, so the pooping duck is really famous, actually. The b- duck wasn't really eating and pooping, but they had like a store of like pre- pre-pooped <laughs> duck poop. I don't know what it was. It looked like duck poop, maybe. And you would feed this robot duck and then watch it actually poop? Oh, I mean, all you see is you see sort of this in and this out. And, and people believed it? People thought this was a, this was a pooping duck. Um, and So we talked about a yeah. bunch of these uh, ancient robots, and most of them were kind of funny. But then he told us about one in particular that was... Actually, it was kind of haunting. Yeah, it's not poopy at all. So the year is uh, it's 1562. This is 450 years ago. Not so long after Columbus. Yep. Ferdinand and Isabella are dead, and there's a new king of Spain. Philip. Philip, yeah, and he has a son. The 17-year-old crown prince, his name's Don Carlos. And one day. He's in the royal lodgings. Uh, he's walking down a flight of stairs. He trips. He falls. He bashes his head against a door near the bottom of the stairs. Mm. This is the crown prince, you say? The crown prince of Spain. So this is a, a national calamity. It is a national calamity because he's the heir apparent, mm. right? So, so, so well, at first, it doesn't look like it's such a bad injury. He's still conscious. But then his head starts to swell to this kind of crazy size. He becomes delirious and feverish. He's struck blind. Ooh. And so at this point, the, the king comes, right? This is King Philip II. So he is at this time, he is the most powerful man in the world, right? So he basically controls the, all of the Americas. He controls much of Europe. The Philippines is named after him. He was tight with the pope. At this time, the pope and the king were kind of like, you know, BFF. Yeah. So, so the whole Spanish court is going nuts. Um, across the country, people are uh, seeing this, reading this as a kind of sign that uh, that God's very angry, right? Yeah. And so they're they're fasting, they're doing these kinds of uh, prayer processions, things like this. And according to Latif, the king calls all the best doctors in Europe to come to Spain to help his son. And these doctors are trying everything. They are drilling a hole in his skull. To relieve the pressure? To relieve the pressure. They are 
bleeding him and blistering him and they are purging him to the extent that he has like 20 bowel movements within just like a certain few hours. They're like smearing all over the wound. They're, they're smearing like turpentine and honey. Oh, and poor Don Carlos. But even after all of this, um, th- they sort of look at each other. They, they look at him and it's kind of like, uh, this is, he's going to die. It's, 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 so he's dying. Yeah. He's basically on his deathbed. So, at this point, according to Latif, the king goes to his son. Legend goes that he kneels beside uh, his son at his son's deathbed, and he makes a pact with God. The pact is, if if you help me, if you heal my son, if you do this miracle for me, I'll do a miracle for you. Wow, that's that's a... That's quite uh, hubristic of a of a human being to say to God. Well, let's also remember that he's the he's he's the most powerful man in in, in the world at this point. He is a god among men, really. Yeah, hubristic or not, this is this is what he says. Yeah, okay. All of a sudden, his son just gets better. Really? Within a week, he can see again. Within a month, he, he it's as if he didn't fall at all. He just pops right back up. Yeah. And King Philip must have thought, well, my God, this is exactly my God. It's probably exactly what he (laughs) thought. And when his son can finally speak, he says to him, Dad, you know, the weirdest thing happened when I was out. I had this dream. Oh, that's a great story. This is Elizabeth King. I'm an artist and uh, a professor in the sculpture department at Virginia Commonwealth University. She's actually the one that hooked Latif on the story. Yep. In any case, the dream. There are documents of Don Carlo next morning saying that he had had a dream. This vision. That a, that a figure. In a, in a Franciscan habit. Shaved head. Sharp nose. This marvelous monk. Entered his room. And approached his deathbed holding a cross and basically told him, you're going to be fine. And that's quite well documented. Apparently there was a witness in the room. In the sick room with him that night. Who overheard the prince talking to a ghost, sort of mumbling things in his delirium. So Don Carlos has this dream. Suddenly he's fine. And the natural question that people are asking is, who is this monk? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is it just a generic monk or is it somebody specific, some messenger from God? And from his description. Physical description. And the shaved head, the pointy nose, the monk's habit. Piercing eyes, even the kind of cross he was using. Kind of everybody in town, the king, everyone was like, oh yeah. Like we know exactly who this guy is. Can only really be one guy. Kind of local friar who died a hundred years before named uh, Diego de Alcala. Diego de Alcala. Who's he? He is a, a local holy figure whose corpse was associated with a number of documented miracles. In fact, this guy was so holy in this town. Mm-hmm. Actually, not just in the town. You want to know something? There's what? a bit of trivia. Ever heard of San Diego? California, you mean? Yeah, as in the Padres. What does he have to? Is this the same guy? Same guy. He was the patron saint of the people who founded San Diego. He is holy. There you go. So So he was so holy in this town (laughs) that people believed his corpse, his 100-year dead corpse, had healing powers. And some people, there are different stories, but some people say that even they, uh, these that unbeknownst to Don Carlos, 
that night that he had the dream? The priesthood and the king himself, according to some stories, went and they got this corpse out of the church, out of the crypt. They carried it through the streets. They brought it to the bedroom. They literally put it, they sort of snuck it in bed with uh, Don Carlos, and that's how he healed. They what? didn't stick him in bed with his bones, did right? They, they just they? kind of they brought him into the room. There's different reports. But there's a <laughs> oh. picture of it in, in this engraving. Oh. Um, and if you can, you, you Wait, probably can't see it, but look at this picture right here. She had a, a a copy of a 16th, roughly a 16th century woodcut, showing you this scene where you could kind of see. Oh, wait, so there yeah, you go. Oh, he's in bed. He's in bed. The two men in bed together are about to be. <laughs> well, they like... could be, you know, they could be just laying him down. <laughs> okay. Yeah, be, it was caught in the middle. It, we're seeing it at great Meanwhile, time. back to our story. You got Philip II, who has asked God for a miracle. God came through, through this monk. And now Philip II is like, uh-oh. I got to deliver. King Philip II owes God a miracle. Yes, he does. And he's, he's acutely aware of this. So basically what he does is he enlists this really renowned clockmaker. A clockmaker? Yep, named uh, Juanello Turiano. Juanello Turiano. Yeah. A huge man, a big ox of a man, described as always being filthy and (laughs) blustery and not a lot of fun to be around. But a great, great clockmaker. Certainly among the best. In Spain. Maybe the entire Holy Roman Empire. So the king goes to this guy and he says, look, I want you to make a mechanical version of Diego de Alcala. What? A mechanical version of this 100-year dead holy priest. Yes. Like a mechanical monk. A robotic padre. Yeah. Which, and this I did not expect, Still exists. Now the monk bot is in the Smithsonian, perfect working order. No way. I swear, I swear that it's since 1977. No. Yeah. The first time I saw this figure, I was drawn to it and then repelled. That's Carlene Stevens. She is a curator at the Smithsonian in DC. About a week after Latif and I spoke, we ended up in DC meeting with her, and she showed us. The monk, who lives in a little glass case. What we have here is an automaton, over 400 years old. Um, so the fir- is this the first robot that we know of? No. No, no, no. No, no idiot. The ancient Greeks had mm-hmm. things that could be considered robots. Okay, back to our story. 450 some odd years ago, our clockmaker, what's his name? Uh, Toriano. Toriano. He goes into his shop and he, he does whatever he does. Connects one gear to another, to another. For hours. Weeks, months. No idea how long it takes. And I don't think anybody does. But he merges one day into the bright sunshine with, what did you call it? A robotic padre. Yeah. It's a 15-inch high figure made of wood and iron, has the sort of habit, has the sandals, has the rosary, has the cross. And poking out of the top of the habit is a little... Bald, hairless head. With that sharp nose, like a like a razor. And the rather ferocious eyes. Like intense or like uh, like doing business ferocious? Like well, like, I'm focused. I'm focused. Like, maybe I'm only 15 inches tall, but I am focused on something much bigger than you, you human. So did you, like, turn it on or push something? Yeah. 
that why would I get on a train and go for three hours just <laughs> right, to, right, to go right. look at it? Obvious question. Okay. Do you want to mind it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do it. So Carlene takes us out into the hall. We sit down on the floor. She gives Latif a little brass key. He sticks it into the secret slot in the monk's side. And I think it goes counterclockwise. You, you okay. would tend you would tend to want to do it this way. Let and Latif winds up the monk. And I'm turning it counterclockwise, and it's surprisingly sort of taut. How much should I turn? And so. If you sort of wind up this sort of secret spring. I think there's a stop in it all. Okay. All right, I'm going. I'm going. Put it on the ground. All right. Let him go? Yeah. Give him a push? It'll walk very slowly. One foot after the other coming out from under the cassock. In fact, there's actually little wheels under there. But yet you see the feet coming out. The head is turning from right to left. The eyes are rolling in the head. The mouth is opening and closing. As if it's sort of muttering like a prayer. The arms are in motion. One arm is raising and lowering across. The other arm is beating the chest. Wow. A symbolic gesture. To a Catholic. That is called the mea culpa. After three or four steps, the, the arm holding the cross does something new. It moves two different new directions to bring the cross to the mouth, and the figure kisses the cross. It's it's oddly, like, uh, mesmerizing. Yes. The next thing it's doing is that it's turning and moving in a different direction, and then walking its paces and kissing the cross. As we watched it, it turned once, then twice, then three times, four times, and then it got back to where it started. So if you imagine a table with a number of people sitting around it, probably it's going to sort of, at one point or another, head for you and then turn away and head for someone else and then turn away. Why would the king of Spain, uh, who could have, you know, I don't know, built a church or or, or taken a crusade to Jerusalem or done something, you know, he could have done anything. Why did he decide to commemorate his son's revival by making a little automatic doll? Like, what was that for? Yeah, lots of. What was he thinking? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. That's the $64,000 question. It's a great question. It's a really good question. The truth is there's really no way to know for sure. And as a historian, I got I to gotta rely on the documentation. And there's not a whole lot of that in this case. But one interpretation certainly could be that, you know, the king had this amazing, miraculous thing happen to his son. And now he had a way of sharing that with his subjects. Because he's got this device where it's a it's an illusion, like the machinery of it is completely hidden. There's no visible. That's yeah. That's one of the craziest parts. That it's all sort of hidden underneath the the robe. So when he put it down on a table or in a courtyard, people would have seen it move on its own. They would have been amazed, as we were. And he could have said, "Look, here is the miracle. Look what God did for our country. God likes Spaniards. Yeah, look at what God did for Spain." Mm. which would have been a useful thing for a king to be able to say, right? So that's one possibility. The other is that just on a more utilitarian level, this was a machine that was built to pray. And this was a period when you could buy prayer repetitions. So if you had the money... You could get someone to pray for you while you go do something else. Oh, that's so so cool. So you're covered. You're, You're covered. And if you think about it from Philip's perspective, he needed to say thank you to God. And here he had this thing that if he wound up, was an automated thank you machine. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it could be thank you, thank you, thank you. Or it could be, I love you, I love you, I love you. you, you. It could also be, I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Or it could be, please, 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 please. 
whatever you need. But if you think about it more expansively, says Latif, like what did it mean at that time to be a Catholic? Like what did it really mean? Well, then this robot was maybe the best Catholic you could ever hope to be. What counted as prayer was, was, was quite specific in the sense that if you say the right things and, and do the right actions in the right order, in the right time, and in the right place, sort of that's prayer. That's when God notices. So it's about method. It's about method. It's about... And maybe this monk, he says, was like method embodied. That's a good one. I mean, why not? Right. It is, in fact, perfect. It repeats itself right. over and over and over, and it replicates the ideal. So it's basically what it is, is... A little, a little teaching object. Like, this is what you're aiming for. Here's how you do it. Like, this is it. This is the perfect prayer. The perfect prayer. This is doing it the perfect way every time. And I, because I'm, I'm just this, you know, lowly, imperfect human, um, I'm not, I can only aspire to this perfect piety. Are you making this up, or do you think that this might, the monk might have actually been seen this way? It could be true. I don't think it's so <laughs> crazy. Especially if you think about what was happening at that moment. And this is counter-Reformation Spain, right? Not so long after Luther, you know, is nailing his theses on the wall. And there's this big debate raging about how actually do you get closer to God? You have the kind of protesters with, with Luther who are saying, it's not about, you know, works. It's not about saying something this many times. It's about whether you feel it. And then you have the kind of Catholic argument, which is to say, you do these rituals because these are the rituals. And these are the way you get, this is the way you get close to God. Uh, this is the way you pray. You pray like this thing. Just like this thing. And if you're a Catholic king, and if God's a Catholic, and you better hope he is. And if you're Philip II, you look at the sky, and you say, God, you and me are square. Special thanks to Latif Nasser. Who you, is a, Latif. Yeah, graduate student at Harvard's History of Science Department. And to Sarah Abdulrahman for her production help on this story. Thanks also to the amazing Elizabeth King, Carlene Stevens at the Smithsonian, and to David Todd. David actually um, is himself an expert clockmaker. He constructed a, a replica of the monk, which is actually what we heard moving around. Huh. Because the monk itself is very old and you don't want to be winding that thing. Mm -hmm. But big thanks to David Todd. We couldn't have done this piece without him. And actually he and Elizabeth King will be publishing a book soon, which is called... A Machine, a Ghost, and a Prayer. The story of a 16th century mechanical monk. And thanks lastly to Stephen Vitiello, who recorded clock sounds in David Todd's workshop, which we used in the piece. Ha! I am exhausted <laughs> from those thank yous. So much gratitude. And, of course, thank you for listening. Yes. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Kulwich. Bye. Hi, my name is Lindsay. I'm from Brooklyn. New York Radio Lab listener. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Thanks. Bye.
Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.